Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we are going to be talking about the mythos as science fiction. So, Scott, I believe you've been delving in to uh, somebody's private life, is that right? Yes. Um, Adrian Tchaikovsky sent us a copy of this new book that he's done together with uh, Keris MacDonald and Adam Gauntlet. Uh, which is a book called The Private Life of Elder Things. And I must say, it's, it's really rather good. Book, it's a collection of new Cthulhu Mythos stories. Um, and it, it takes a fairly interesting approach. All the stories you find in it are reinventions of elements you'll find in Lovecraft stories. I mean, usually creatures or, but in some cases, items, uh, uh, or, or in one case, a location, are then brought, in most cases, up into the modern day or at least presented in really interesting different lights. Relating to elder things or not always? No, not all. I... I, I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to sort of give a list of what the various creatures and elements are. No, because, fair enough. But because, it's not. But well, because one of the real pleasures of this book is the fact that they are reinvented in such novel ways, and it's not presented up front what's going on. So sometimes you're reading through one of these, sort of thinking, "Oh, hang on, where is where is this going? What what you know? What's going to lie at the centre of all this?" And some of them work really nicely, you know, as well as being fun stories to read, as being almost puzzles getting through and sort of thinking, "Oh, yeah, yeah, what, what's what's going to be behind this bit?" They're all aspects of the Cthulhu mythos, you know, that you'd find in Call of Cthulhu. I, I think almost every single one of them uh with possibly one exception are things that you'd actually find in the core keeper rule book and i don't think it's a coincidence that um everyone involved with it seems to have a background in gaming adrian tchaikovsky i don't think has actually written any gaming material himself certainly i uh, yeah i know he's a gamer i know he's a listener of this this podcast and he's a very successful author yes yeah i mean yeah. he's he's written oh gosh uh i think something like 14 or 15 novels so far uh, a very successful fantasy series called shadows of the ant and he recently won the arthur c Clarke award for uh, his science fiction novel uh, the children of time hmm. Yeah, I mean, the other two authors, uh, Karis MacDonald is the only one of the three I hadn't heard of before. Apparently, this is because she mostly writes under a pseudonym, uh, which is Janine Ashbless, under which she, she apparently writes what she describes as dark fantasy erotica. But she does write uh, horror fiction under her own name. And this is the first time I've encountered her stuff. And I must say that, you know, the three stories that she contributed to this book were amongst my favourites in there. And, you know, if she is you know, publishing any more horror stories, I really, really want to read them. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, the, the final writer, as we mentioned, Adam Gauntlet, is um, a long-time RPG writer. Uh, you've, you've probably encountered his work. In, he's certainly written stuff for Call of Cthulhu, for Chaosium, and for Miskatonic River Press. And you may know him from such shows as Yog Radio <laughs> and Trailer <laughs> yes. Cthulhu as well. Yeah, and yeah. he's written a lot of stuff for Pelgrane Press. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, he's been very, very prolific there. Mm. And it's called The Private Life of Elder Things. Yes. And, I mean, do we just look it up on Amazon or wherever? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's published by the Alchemy Press. It's available in paperback and ebook form. Uh, I have actually written a comprehensive review of it, uh, which has got some links uh, in it, including where you can go off and buy it. And that will be up on Blasphemous Tomes by the time this episode goes out. 
What's next? I guess what's next is the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week our word is a word that I'm surprised, and Scott was surprised, we haven't used before. Cosmic. It's an adjective. One. Of or relating to the regions of the universe distinct from Earth. Two. Infinitely or inconceivably extended. Vast. And yes, this isn't quite as grand or baroque a word as some of Lovecraft's more lurid adjectives, but it is one that is at the heart of his work. When we talk about cosmic horror as a subgenre of horror fiction, it pretty much started with Lovecraft, and there were a few other people doing similar stuff around the same time. But Lovecraft embodied it, and you know, I think to this day, you know, if you asked most people who, well, the, what the phrase cosmic horror means they'd immediately identify it with Lovecraft. Yeah, and the whole concept of cosmic horror sort of brings to mind something of the cosmos being too much for any person to kind of comprehend and the whole horror of the vastness of space. Yes, and man's insignificance, the fact that it is a cold, uncaring universe and we are a very small, insignificant part of it. It all sounds a little Douglas Adams, really. Yeah, I'd never really thought of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as as, uh, cosmic horror, but the total perspective vortex certainly is. Lovecraft used the word cosmic, or uh, at least related words, words that use cosmic as the root, a hell of a lot in his stories. He used it 70 times. So this is one of the more common words that we've talked about. I swear, I'm not sure if it's from a film or whether it's from some weirdly distorted memory of my childhood, but I remember people using cosmic as a kind of expression of almost similar to wicked or, oh, yeah. or cool. it, it, tremendous. It, yeah, 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 yeah it, it was very much a sort of late 60s, early 70s thing. But anyway, let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word cosmic in his works. From At the Mountains of Madness Myth or Otherwise the sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nascent, lifeless earth out of cosmic space. Their coming, and the coming of many other alien entities, such as at certain times embark upon spatial pioneering. And from The Dreams in the Witch House. One afternoon... There was a discussion of possible freakish curvatures in space and of theoretical points of approach or even contact between our part of the cosmos and various other regions as distant as the farthest stars or the transgalactic gulfs themselves or even as fabulously remote as the tentatively conceivable cosmic units beyond the whole Einsteinian space-time continuum. And from the Whisperer in Darkness... Those wild hills are surely the outposts of a frightful cosmic race, as I doubt all the less since reading that a new ninth planet has been glimpsed beyond Neptune, just as those influences had said it would be glimpsed. And now moving on to our main topic, the mythos as science fiction. Call of Cthulhu, is it horror or is it science fiction? And what do we, if it is indeed science fiction, what are the bounds of science fiction? I mean, that is a really, really difficult thing to define. 
A lot of people over the years have tried to pin down precisely what science fiction is. And the really sort of easy, facile description is, you know, it's anything that involves spaceships and robots and ray guns and, you know, maybe time travel or is set in the future. But science fiction has had such a broad scope over the years. If you use that definition, you you end up accepting a lot of, say, Ray Bradbury's stuff or some of Harlan Ellison's material or maybe even, you know, some of the, the more mundanely set Philip K. Dick stuff. So science fiction is a fairly broad church. But you do keep the real stuff like Star Wars, right, Scott? Star Wars is fucking fantasy, Paul. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's because he won't have it contaminate a genre he likes. That's why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think this this sort of difficulty in pinning it down and this blurring between science fiction and horror has been there since the beginning. I mean, many people have have suggested that Frankenstein was the first science fiction novel, and yeah, it's probably something that we associate more as as horror these days. But it is fundamentally about using medical science and and other sciences to try to create life play god uh, so it is you know, an archetypal mad science story as with any discussion of genres really you know the the classic being discussions of musical genres you know where does a certain band fit are they are they rock are they pop are they you know and all of the, the various um, subdivisions of like metal or whatever any category so science fiction is hard to pin down so in our discussions we've pulled out a few subheadings that we're going to look at the first being aliens, then space travel, other dimensions, time travel and mad science. All of these things which are very much sort of science fiction in their roots. And we've looked at how those are explored and expressed in the Cthulhu mythos. And I think all of this comes down to the fact that Lovecraft himself was not only interested in the sciences, but also as a materialist. You know, he famously wanted to get away from the superstition and the gothic roots of a lot of earlier horror fiction and come up with a, a form of, of horror fiction that would scare anyone, regardless of what their beliefs were. I mean, that also scaring people does involve a certain blurring of the lines a lot of the time between what is science, what is magic, what's horror, what's science fiction. There's... But again, this makes it quite hard to pin down, as you say, what where it fits into a particular genre, because that line between the two is quite muddled most of the time. Yeah, I think that's something that we're going to keep coming back to over and over again uh, during this episode. I mean, with with Lovecraft's work at its core and the, the larger mythos, yeah, it, it is almost impossible to tell where that, uh, you know, where that line of what is alien science or science that is beyond human comprehension ends and where magic begins. Is that line even there at all? Or is everything that we take as magic or supernatural in the mythos just a form of alien science that, you know, like Arthur C. Clarke famously said, you know, is you know, any sufficiently advanced science Science is indistinguishable from magic. Personally, you know, that, that's a take on the mythos I really, really like. And it's clear to us that Lovecraft was interested in cutting-edge science. He was talking about Einstein, who was kind of contemporary. He was talking about the discovery of Pluto. You know, at the time that it happened, he was drawing that into his stories very, very quickly. Um, he was, you know, with the Antarctic expedition, which, you know, was r relatively recent. So he would look at what was happening in science today. If he were writing today, I guess he'd be talking about the Large Hadron Collider and another modern exploration of physics and so on. 
And now we look at aliens within the Cthulhu mythos. So Lovecraft makes reference to a lot of these creatures and their roots, where they came from. And often they have come from out of space, from a distant planet. Sometimes Lovecraft actually describes that and sometimes he just makes a, uh, an inference that, you know, that, that, that that's where they've come from. They came down from the stars, as with Cthulhu. Yeah, I mean, not just Cthulhu, but I mean, so many of the the entities in his work are described as as being extraterrestrial. Cthulhu himself, you know, is is described as having come from from space. On the smaller scale, there's obviously entities like the Migo, uh, who have flown here on their own wings from a, uh, across the stars. Same as the older things. Yeah, and the Great Race of Yith. I mean, they've they've kind of. Uh, mentally transferred themselves across the, the the cosmos into a race of beings millions of years ago on Earth. Now I noticed that most of the these things coming to Earth, not only did they come across the vastness of space, but they came here sort of almost across the vastness of time. They came here a long time ago. You know, it's lost in in our dim and distant past. We do in the Whisper in Darkness, we do get the Migo turning up like in the now. But most of these things that are here, they've been here for maybe millions of years. Even then, the, the Migo have been got occasional visitors to Earth for quite a considerable time because you have the mentioning in At the Mountains of Madness that there's the war between them and the Elder Things. Mm. So it's they come come here almost like a tourist destination. That it's they come every every other season or so. And I think this reinforces that sense of cosmic horror that we talked about. That not only are there alien beings out there in the universe that are more powerful than us but also the scope of time is so great that they were here millions of years ago before man and we get the the idea that they'll be here long after us or they'll be in the universe long after us and that that puts mankind as a an insignificant little blip both in time and in space but yet even though man is so insignificant and earth is one small fleck of dust uh, floating around on this unillimitable black sea of infinity. Why the hell is it so many races and gods want to come here rather than anywhere else? Well, it could be that they're just all over the place. They've done this in, in worlds across the cosmos. But because this is the only one we know about, the only one we can perceive, this is the one that we're aware of them. Yeah, or where we're aware of them. It just, it just struck me then, that as we were describing it, and thinking, Earth gets a lot of attention. Well, it gets a lot of attention from Lovecraft's narrators because they are human and they live on Earth. <laughs> Makes you wonder what besetting a uh, Lovecraftian story on another planet would be like. Yeah, I, I suppose we're starting to drift into Clark Ashton Smith territory there because he did write... Uh, Zikarp? Yes, yeah, and of course the Mars stories as well. You could almost take those as what happens when a truly alien world encounters some of these things. <laughs> And I suppose one other aspect of having these aliens in our midst uh, that plays into the science fiction aspects is you do get these these races I mean, like the Yithians we just mentioned or, or Ramsey Campbell's creation, the Shan, who exert direct influence over human beings. And that sort of plays in very nicely into some of the more paranoid science fiction that came you know, a few years later or a couple of decades later, like Jack Finney's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Also lends itself really well to Call of Cthulhu gaming because because there are aliens that are actually taking an interest in and having an effect upon human protagonists. Could be PCs, or they could be the things the PCs are investigating, because that human scale is much more easier to kind of game with when you're playing human investigators. 
But I suppose what's interesting there is Invasion of the Body Snatches is that thing writ large. It's, it's what happens when that takeover happens on a mass scale. And that's something we never really tend to see in, in uh, Call of Cthulhu or very rarely in mythos fiction. And I suppose that can make quite an interesting setup for a Call of Cthulhu scenario. What happens when um, you get say, you know, sham possession or, or, you know, the Ithians coming in on a, a national scale. So Lovecraft's more often writing about a personal horror to, to one person or a small group of people, but often it does have implications for the wider world, but it's presented as a, to a small group, isn't it? And it also plays in nicely to something we've talked about on earlier episodes, uh, which is this cargo cult aspect of, of the mythos. Um, I think this is almost getting into von Daniken territory in the, the Chariots of the Gods. The idea that you know, we, we have these ancient aliens on Earth that are perceived as gods and you know, have led to religious cults or you know, these strange movements forming in their names. Yeah, I remember that there was a... Oh, famous picture of mine pictograms where it pretty much represented this is a space helmet. Quite quite blatantly, this is a space helmet. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the, the, those lines in South America that look like alien landing strips when they're viewed from an aerial view. Well, they look like alien lands, landing strips, whatever yeah. alien landing strips look like, <laughs> right? But, but there's something that can only kind of be viewed from above, it would seem, uh, which kind of, and the whole thing with the pyramids and you know, so there, there's lots of stuff that one can kind of draw upon to sort of say, well, maybe there were, you know, aliens coming to Earth like within human civilizations uh, sort of history. And I suppose all that provides an interesting model for the fact that, um, you know, in the mythos, you do have all these cults of people worshipping these, these powerful alien entities as gods. And I think also an interesting way that you could look at some of this is um, if any of you are familiar with uh, the novel Roadside Picnic, uh, which was then filmed uh, sometime later as, as Stalker, a Russian novel from, I think, the 1970s, maybe 1960s by the Stugatsky brothers. And it posits this alien effect upon Earth of mysterious origins. Basically, this alien, not, not entity, or but... Um, Thing. Yeah, not even a thing. It seems to be almost uh, an accidental byproduct of their presence or you know them touching the world somehow has changed various places on Earth. Um, and it's, it's caused the creation, or, or at least for these artefacts, to be left behind. And in these zones... You know, the laws of physics no longer apply. They are, you know, strange, dangerous places. But these weird little artefacts that people can find there suddenly make it worth going in and and risking their lives and their sanity to actually recover some of these. And the effects upon humanity by this, this alien presence, in the book at least, are absolutely horrific. And we can't miss out the colour out of space as well, right? Which we've uh, discussed in in an earlier episode, the Lovecraft story, the colour out of space, which seems to be an alien. Well, it it is, um, has come down on a kind of asteroid. It's kind of hit into Earth and it's there and it kind of leeches out and it affects people. Is it an alien being? Is it just some sort of like virus type thing? I mean, who knows? But it certainly seems alien and science fiction and certainly a lot of classic science fiction films and books owe their their origins uh, to i'd say the color out of space i mean things like the blob and the andromeda strain you know for a start now we say alien that these creatures have come from outer space and landed on earth there are things that we would still consider quite 
alien, he says in inverted commas, but are very much of this Earth. Um, you've got the likes of the Deep Ones, um, originated on Earth. Serpent people, again, um, had their empire in the distant past, now have retreated underground. You've also got ghouls, uh, very much of this Earth. Obviously, they cross between here and the dreamlands of Earth, but still very much of Earth. And, of course, everyone's poor creatures that have faded into insignificance in the past, those uh, gorgeous cone-like creatures that were in, um, indigenous to Australia before they all got kicked off Earth by the great race of Yith. I mean, these things like the Deep Ones and ghouls and so on, they don't feel... I mean, they kind of feel alien in a, in the sense that they are strange and, you know, not familiar to us, but they don't really feel like as science fictional as, as some of the other elements to me. Well, except I'd say the idea of having these hidden sapient races uh, living on the world with us and that we're only vaguely aware of them is a fairly science fictional one. To the extent where I, it's interesting that we focused on, you know, particularly both the Deep Ones and Serpent People, because if we want to see their science fictional analogues, we just look at Doctor Who. Yes, the Silurians and the Sea Devils. Admittedly, they're both, admittedly, in Doctor Who, they're strains of the same race. Just one's become more aquatic and the other one hasn't. And now let's take a look at the frozen vacuum of space and the creatures that travel through it. So within the, the broader Cthulhu mythos, there are a whole raft of alien worlds, alien places, such as Yogoth, Shagai, Carcosa, Yith, and the Library of Solano, and the strange worlds that can be glimpsed through the shining trapezohedron. These places, I mean, we might not view them necessarily as kind of science fiction, but they definitely are alien places far from Earth. Yeah, quite often Lovecraft describes the star systems that are nearby or mentions those by name and gives the, gives us the fact that they are rooted somewhere out there in the cosmos, out there in space. They're not just strange phantasms. It's not like other supernatural dimensions like hell or heaven uh, that we can dip into. These are real, concrete, tangible places. And we're told that the Migo, they actually fly through space carrying these brain cylinders and so on, and they, you know, they, they go back and forth from Yogoth. Um, so we definitely have you know, the, the concept of space travel. And the same with the older things. You know, they, they flew to Earth you know, using their wings, but now their wings have atrophied and are no longer able to sort of bear them through space. And we get the same with Baiaki. And so there are various races that are actually described as, as explicitly as space travellers. Personally, I find it quite unnerving that there are these alien creatures at home in space, just as much so as they are on Earth. This is the cold, hard vacuum of space, the ultimate unforgiving environment, instant death to humanity. And yet you have these creatures that can not only survive it, but fly through it as, as you know, birds and bats would through our own atmosphere. Kind of envious in that respect that they they have the whole universe at their fingertips. All it just takes is forever to fly from one side of the galaxy to the other. But it also sets them apart as being unlike any other life form on Earth. So they are, in true respect of the word, completely alien. That nothing else on Earth can survive without at least some access to oxygen in some fashion. Because even deep sea fish and so on still have gills where they'd filter oxygen through water and so on that there's nothing like that that can exist without any kind of fuel or sustenance when you're in vacuum as you say there is nothing to draw upon that could sustain life and we're given the information that some of these things can bear us 
through space mm. as well. You know, like through via the Migo brain cylinders without our bodies, but um, they they can take our consciousness away with them, or through the use of space mead, which you know I've always kind of fancied. Um, you know, that allows us to survive space travel. I suppose one thing that doesn't really come out in in these stories. If you've got these creatures flying through space, I mean, even if they're going to somewhere within our own solar system, like Yuggoth, that is a hell of a distance away. It sort of, again, plays in with the the cosmic horror and the deep time aspects of the game, that perhaps for a creature like an Elder Thing or Amigo, flying from here to Yoggoth, it might take them, you know, years, decades, centuries. But if you're a mortal, if you don't operate on human timescales, then that's not important. But for us to make that journey with them, that would be horror. Either we, you know, we would die of old age long before we hit even the earliest, uh, you know, the, the nearest destination, or we would be changed in such a way that we could survive that journey, which is a fairly horrifying thing to, con- to conceive mm. of, just spending decades, you know, traveling, flying through the cold vacuum of space. That, I, I don't know, just the idea of that creeps me the hell out. Sounds like my day job, though. (laughs) (laughs) And another cosmic image that we get from Lovecraft that he brings up numerous times in his stories is the court of Azathoth, this blind idiot god, Azathoth, at the heart of the universe, ruling the universe, surrounded by piping minor gods. That's a fantastic image. And he doesn't really make that much of it. He kind of refers to it to give us a sense of the weirdness of the universe and the chaos of the universe. But he kind of throws it in the same way as he might mention, like Shubnigarath, Black Goat of the Woods and, and all that. So it kind of adds flavour to it, but it's definitely a, a, a science fiction one. And I think there's the same kind of evocativeness that goes along with Carcosa as well. The fact that, you know, it is this alien city under alien stars and suns and, and moons. Mm-hmm. Because it's just a few names and brief descriptions and so on, people have been able to go to town with creating this alien world and, and making it something really quite, you know, strange and beautiful. Mm-hmm. As with the Court of Azathoth, there's actually very little in the original fiction that actually sets any of that down, which makes you very, very free to play with it. Yeah. So a gate is, a, you know, that's the simplest form of travel. You open a, a magical gate, you step through it, and you enter another distant um, realm. Yeah, so that can be on another planet. That can be, you know, into the Great Library of Solano. It could be anywhere. And this is something we see an awful lot in other science fiction. I mean, God, Stargate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right, it's not quite as mythosy, and it's, it's <laughs> you know, hard science rather than necessarily, you know, this alien magic making it work, but... There's fundamentally not a lot of difference, I'd say, between you know the way a Stargate functions within the fiction and the way a gate would work in a, in a Call of Cthulhu game. At least in Stargate, uh, you can jump through. Okay, you jump through a gate to a distant world. You have a problem. You think, ah, no, there's adversaries here. There's sort of overrun armies of gold or whatever. Um, you turn around and jump back through the gate again, and you you return back to the SGC, and all's good again. I can think of a few places where you do that in the mythos that if you do that in quick succession, you're dead when you arrive back because it costs so much to go through that gate. And there's that fantastic chart in the rule book showing, you know, how many magic points it costs to go how many miles and you just get massive strings of zeros on the miles, which (laughs) always kind of uh, appealed to me. I don't know why. (laughs) 
One thing I've never been quite sure of, and yeah, I don't know if either of you can answer this or whether one of the listeners can, which is where gates really came from. I don't necessarily remember them appearing in that form in any of Lovecraft's stories. Um, I think there's perhaps a hint of some of it in the Dunwich Horror. I, I don't know, is this more of a Derlethian thing? It's so long since I've read Derleth that my mind has just shed almost all the details of his work. Well, I think that's a, a question for the listeners, Scott. Yeah, where did gates crop up? Now let's move on and step into other dimensions. This is something that I think has an echo or has been taken forward partially into the likes of some games like the World of Darkness games, where there are different layers of reality. Um, you could argue in um, in the mythos that at the bottom of reality you have nothingness through which the dolls have just eaten their way through and destroyed every bit of fabric of reality. They've then started to worm their way through into the dreamlands, which then you've got the ghouls which burrow up into our realm, and then the various other in inverted commas, higher dimensions that we find that are peppered with these floating things that just seem to swim and eat and there's very little else that they do. And I can't think of too many stories that I've read that predate Lovecraft that actually really used that idea of there being other dimensions. Again, you know, someone more knowledgeable might be able to point some out. Uh, the only ones that occur to me off the top of my head, and they're roughly contemporary with Lovecraft, is uh, William Hope Hobson's uh, Karnaki the Ghostfinder, and there's, there's hints of that in there. I suppose key in Lovecraft to the other dimensions has to be Crawford Tillinghast with his... Uh, the Tillinghast Resonator, which allows us to see those things that Matt referred to. And there are these places as well that break the laws of three-dimensional space. So there's the Witch House and the Dreams in the Witch House, which has got all these strange angles in it, and where our protagonist has these dreams, which may actually be a form of dimensional travel, passing through these into other realms, other worlds. There's also, uh, thinking about it, really a... The non-Euclidean architecture there, the fact that you've got someone who's described as falling into one of the angles and getting lost, it sounds like he went into another dimension there, or at least stepped outside the bounds of three-dimensional space. And ended yeah, up I, I, somewhere. I, I think this whole concept, like you say, of the non-Euclidean does feel like a, an alien sort of science fiction concept. Yeah. And then there are the dreamlands, and could be science fiction, could be fantasy, but it's a it's another world separate to ours or kind of maybe integral to ours but certainly a world apart thinking of going back to the concept of gates that um, image does crop up again at least in the game i'm not sure if it was derived from a story originally there are gates of a neurology um, those that can physically enter the dreamlands well of course we have randolph carter with his silver key and you know a key implies a door or a gate. So, you know, he uses that to, to go back into the dreamlands, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. Whereas it can also then, if you think of other dimensions outside of our sphered space, uh, you've got um, the silver key ties in with the, the ultimate gate that would obviously lead to Yogg-Sothoth outside of sphered dimension. And referencing Clark Ashton Smith, you have Kuchila Tas, who comes from unsphered space so again you've got lots of as well as going up and down in dimensional uh, spectrum you've got a vast amount going from side to side and i suppose again one important thing to point out here is there is no coherent cosmology to all this and i think that's again one of the strengths of call of cthulhu in that um 
you know, it not only gives you a lot of freedom to create your own variants of this without being constrained in your own games, but it also hints at the fact that all of this is fundamentally too alien and too weird for the human mind to comprehend, that we see these contradictions. If you do think about it long and hard enough, you can actually put it all together and make sense and make it all into a cohesive whole. And if you can do that and and find Scott at a games convention sometime and and sit down with him (laughs) and explain it all to him, you know, he'd love that. He'll just tell you how wouldn't you love that? He'll just tell you how wrong you are. (laughs) But don't listen. Don't listen to him. We touched upon Yogg Sothoth there. He's described as being the the gate and the the key and this portal to other places and times and dimensions. But I suppose what what interests me is the fact that you know in the Dunwich Horror we see him you know potentially being summoned from somewhere, and it's a classic Call of Cthulhu trope that you know, you have these these lost entities, these ancient entities that are being summoned by people, and. I mean, where are all these things coming from? That is a good question. If they're being summoned, they're being summoned from somewhere. We're told that Wilbur Waitley is kind of, you know, he's, he's kind of opening the way. He's kind of laying the path for Yogg-Sothoth to return. Almost like he's ripping open the fabric of reality to, to let Yogg-Sothoth into our world. Um, so, yeah, is he coming from a distant planet? Or is he coming from another dimension? Is, is from the court of Adathoth, where the outer gods reside? But if we do posit all these kind of little strange places where these entities live, where they're being called from, perhaps they're prisons, perhaps they're their homes, or perhaps they're just something that the human mind can't, can't, can't conceive of. I mean, we're ripping these holes, we're summoning them through. Surely some of these holes, like gates, are going to be you know, two-way. What happens if one of these rituals goes wrong, and instead of you know, something being pulled through, something from our world is pulled through to where they are? Perhaps it's, it's a small community, a small village. Someone is trying to summon Yogg-Sothoth, and suddenly you end up with a town like Dunwich, which is suddenly somewhere very different. And of course, there's a couple of artefacts which tie in with other, other dimensions, one being the Glass of Leng, um, a piece of glass which is kind of inscribed with magical rituals that allow you to, to see through to other places and perhaps even other times. And now it's time to talk about time travel. Time travel is great, isn't it? <laughs> it's so full of pitfalls, though. Um, you know, it seems like a great idea. And in things like um, Back to the Future and so on, where you've kind of got total control over the story as kind of the author of the of the film you know if you're making it writing a piece of fiction or a, you know making a film then you can have total creative control over it when you introduce it to a load of players man i mean you're you're really opening the well opening the gate to uh, all sorts of troubles one of them's going to step on a butterfly and change the course of history you know it's going to happen <laughs> And yeah, I, that's actually something that we don't necessarily see in a lot of um, you know, Lovecraftian time travel stuff, which is that whole butterfly effect thing. That would actually be quite an interesting thing to explore, that you know, perhaps if you did have a scenario involving Yithians, say, and people having their minds projected back through time, or use of the plutonium drug, you know, these are two things we'll, we'll touch on again in a bit more detail in a moment. But the idea that they are then in a, a situation where they could just screw with time. So how do we see time travel portrayed in the Cthulhu mythos? I mean, you just mentioned Yithians there, Scott. So there's this race of beings which were native to Earth but were taken over by an alien uh, consciousnesses 
which are millions of years in our past, living somewhere under the desert in you know modern modern day Australia. But you know, and they are able to project their consciousness to the modern day. See here, Shadow Out of Time, the Lovecraft story that we talked about in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. But they are able to time travel all the way to modern day and possess human beings and send us back into their body millions of years ago. So there's that's a definite bit of time travel going on. But again, it's very much it's just the consciousness that travels. There's almost no instances in the fiction of where it's physical time travel. Mm. Yeah, you get exactly the same thing in the hands of Tindalos with the Plutonian drug. So this is this drug that will separate uh, someone's consciousness from their body and, again, allow them to protect it through time. It's not exactly like the Yithians in that you don't go back and possess someone. It's more like remote viewing. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of instances in, in the game where you can physically go either forwards or backwards. There's one scenario I can think of where there's in, involves a temporal vortex or time gate that ends up throwing you into the very far future and you, you end up in Zathique. And another, admittedly not so much in scenarios, but definitely in the alien technology section in the rulebook, you have Yithian stasis, stasis cubes, wherein you can go into the bottom, you can go into this huge white box, and time just runs a lot, lot slower inside. So everything on the outside passes normally. You would walk into the box and think, it's a box, it's an empty room. Walk out the box and 100,000 years could have passed. Huh. We mentioned briefly the Hounds of Tindalos, and they're a rare example of something that does physically move through time. These creatures that sort of live within time, we never entirely understand their motivations, but, you know, whether they're guardians of some sort or whether they're just predators, but if you attract their attention, um, they will travel through time and they will devour you. But I guess time travel is an appealing aspect when telling stories and we see it time and again in in films and and stories and it's an appealing thing to put into our games whether it be actual traveling forward in time back in time or being trapped in some kind of time loop yeah at least at least two of us have written scenarios involving time loops (laughs) yeah i mean it's 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 a gift isn't it it's just kind of a a fun thing um to put in and i like groundhogs (laughs) yeah (laughs) and of course in Call of Cthulhu, you've also got the idea that gates can go through time as well as through space. Again, I'm not entirely sure whether this is rooted in the fiction at all. Perhaps, you know, a rare opportunity in in Call of Cthulhu and the mythos to actually physically travel to another time. And now it's time for the big one. The thing that probably brings the most science fiction into people's Call of Cthulhu games. We're talking about mad science. You say it like there's any other type of science. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the game. Anybody who's <laughs> doing science has got to be mad. It's either science, it's like mad science or science with an exclamation mark at the end of it. And never more so than in Pulp Cthulhu as well, really, where mad science, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that is the, the epitome of uh, Pulp to me. It's kind of like crazy scientists, you know, that, Death rays galore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I suppose we should probably pin down a little bit by what we mean by mad science or, or weird science in this context. So it's scientists, it's doctors, it's professor, it's scientists doing things which seemingly break the, the bounds of, of what's possible or pushing science on in, in ways that go beyond what we could imagine actually being realistic. 
And I think in Call of Cthulhu, uh, one of the cool things is the fact that these scientists don't even necessarily have to be human. That we have all these strange uh, alien bits of technology that have come about from other races or other times or other places that do very, very strange things. Yeah, so it's also these artefacts that, that fall into the category, right? Yeah, so yeah. what one might almost call magic items, but, you know, they're, they're alien devices, produced by mad science like all good magic items they always generally have a downside where they will screw you up in some fashion well should we start off with a look at some of the more human mad scientists before we go full alien here yeah and lovecraft includes a few of these so i mean top of the list surely herbert west reanimator <laughs> the great reanimator <laughs> and this is entirely appropriate, as we mentioned earlier. I mean, science fiction really started with Frankenstein, and Herbert West Reanimator is pretty much Lovecraft's love letter to Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So who was Herbert West? He was a doctor who decided to bring back dead corpses to, back to life. Yeah, he, uh, he was a, a doctor at the Miskatonic University, created this reagent, this substance that he would inject into cadavers and bring them back to some form of life. Except he always blamed the fact that his subjects weren't fresh enough for the fact that they tended to come back in a killing rage. And he ends up in the First World War in the trenches, you know, bringing, working on bodies even there. And if you really want to know, you know, the true spirit of mad science and Herbert West, look no further than Reanimator, the film, which, again, we've talked about in a previous episode. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not a particularly faithful adaptation, but a spirited one. Hmm. You see, whereas Herbert's probably the biggest name that comes to mind in terms of mad science, I, my favourite has to be Tillinghast. He is a very, I'd say, cold character that very much doesn't really necessarily care about the value of human life as long as his experiment continues to, um, continues to go on and that he builds his resonator that he can see into other dimensions. But again, regardless of cost, it's, it's a line that comes up in Doctor Who of that some of the kind of evil science in that comes from the ends justify the means. Well, the mad science of the resonator is fantastic because there are multiple layers to it. That is this device that, that stimulates the pineal gland in the human brain, uh, which, you know, in the story then causes people to have the ability to perceive these higher di- dimensions. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's at least two or three layers of madness there. So, so was the image that Paul was making with his hand then for a moment. <laughs> so <laughs> so like Jeffrey to, to from yeah. beyond, where the pineal gland actually sticks out of a hole in the front of their head. Yeah. The first one of Lovecraft's mad scientists that I became aware of uh, was Dr Munoz uh, from Cool Air. Because even though I hadn't read the story until some years later, one of my earliest exposures to Lovecraft was through the Cool Air adaptation in the Night Gallery TV series in the 70s. And I remember watching this when I was probably about 10 years old. And this this episode scared the hell out of me. So in the episode, as well as in the the original story, Munoz is this man who lives... Uh, he's a doctor, lives in an apartment block. He looks after the people in the you know, in the the apartments. Uh, he's a sort of pillar of the community, but he never actually leaves his apartment, which is always kept very, very refrigerated. The reason for this is that Doctor Munoz is dead. He has managed to stop himself actually succumbing to death, and is using the refrigeration in his apartment to preserve himself, to stop himself from decaying. Of course, when our protagonist encounters him, that's when there's an electricity cut. 
And, well, you can imagine what would happen. Although, to be fair, the fact that you're just describing as having a permanently refrigerated room is what my house would be like if I had aircon. <laughs> it would be almost just hovering below zero. I hate the heat. I thought you hated the cold as well, though, Matt. Only when it gets below zero, that's what I say. We put it above zero, and I'm just above okay. zero, and I'm fine. Right. Then we have the Elder Things in Antarctica that are discovered by the uh, mission that, that is sent there. And, you know, those are kind of described in the story as uh, crazy scientists, you know, albeit millions of years ago that they were working, but and they're an alien race. But, you know, they, according to the story, they end up creating the Shoggoths and even humanity itself. They're, they are scientists genetic well, engineers and and, the, yeah. and our protagonist in the story kind of feels a sympathy for them doesn't he because he yeah. sees them as as scientists well more than that he says they were men so he sees very much the human aspect in them and yeah this i i suppose almost more than any of the other mad scientists we've talked about so far this is the classic mad science tale of hubris in that they create life they create the shockers these perfect slaves adaptable to any environments but you know in true frankenstein fashion the slaves then rise up and overthrow them and and you know they've sown the seeds of their own destruction there and of course, there are other alien races who dabble in mad science. I mean, the the depiction of the the serpent people in Clark Ashton Smith's The Seven Gears, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Um, yeah, they're described as being very much sort of mad scientist types. Mm. And of course, the Migo, with their experimentation, you know, being able to extract human brains, put them in these cylinders. There's the Yithians. Um, again, this probably comes out more in the game than it does in the story. But even the story, they're building these, these time machines or these machines to return their consciousnesses back to their original bodies. But in, in the game, there's, there's other devices they build, aren't there? Yeah, like the stasis cubes I mentioned earlier. Um, the communicator, which is probably given more description in the game than it is in the story. Because in the... I think in the story, even describes that you could build one just mathematically. They don't have to be a physical form. It's more of a concept that then you can latch on to through time. And in the game, of course, there's the lightning guns. <laughs> yeah, they, they can go uh, quite hideously wrong. Neartholotep, even in the story, Neartholotep, where it depicts the figure Neartholotep coming from inner Egypt and then wandering the world, displaying these marvels of science and technology, that's pretty much first hand weird tech being used directly in a story. Mm. Yeah, and this was Lovecraft being influenced by stories he'd heard of the demonstrations put on by Nikola Tesla. So you, you don't get much more bad science than that. <laughs> in fact, was Tesla, Tesla an avatar of Neartholotep? There's also the whole question of magic in the mythos. And you know, going back to that quote that Scott mentioned from Arthur C. Clarke about advanced technology being kind of indistinguishable from magic... Take a magician like Joseph Kerwin and the, the things that we find in the various tomes about you know, affecting reality and so on. Are they just manifestations of something scientific or are they magical? Where do we draw the line? Just a branch of science that we haven't codified yet. But of course, you know, because we are superstitious creatures, we tend to see these things as magic. We tend to see them as supernatural because that's the only reference point that we have for understanding them. And now we look at the science fiction elements of Lovecraftian gaming. It strikes me as odd that comparatively few Call of Cthulhu scenarios that I've played actually involve explicit science fictional elements. 
considering how much of Lovecraft's stories do. I mean, they tend to play up much more the, the supernatural and the cult approach and the, the, you know, the alien monsters and the gods. But the actual science fiction bits, I mean, short of the occasional artefact, it doesn't really come in that much. No, there's, only, there's only a handful of scenarios I can think of that I've played or read that are blatantly sci-fi. Probably one of the biggest ones is Grace Under Pressure from Pagan Publishing, um, set on a submarine. Hmm. That's probably the, um, the only one aside from... There is a gaslight scenario as well that involves a trip to the moon. But yeah, it's, it's very underplayed. And I suppose a couple of the scenarios that we did for Nameless Horrors were, you know, science fiction ones. I mean, they're not, you know, spaceships and ray guns type science fiction, but they're more intrusions of the alien or, you know, alien invasions into, uh, you know, an everyday setting. Outside of Call of Cthulhu itself, there are a couple of spin-off games that really do amp up and kind of dial up the sci-fi tone to 11. Um, that started back in... 1995, so quite a while back, with um, GURPS Cthulhu Punk, which we found that uh, Paul had a copy hiding on his shelf. Yeah, it's um, kind of an odd mashup, as the as the name implies, between, you know, it, it was a fairly late cyberpunk game coming along after Cyberpunk 2020, or, you know, the original cyberpunk, and even things like Shadowrun, but just bolting mythos elements onto a classic cyberpunk frame. <laughs> um, I must admit, I've never actually played it, and I... Um, I'm not entirely sure I know anyone who has. <laughs> no. It would be interesting as a historical artefact, you know, this game from 20 years ago and see what it's like to modern sensibilities. Then from 2002, we have a standalone game called Spaceship Zero, which gives us, as I recall, it's like deep ones in spaceships, which, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's, to, what's to hate about that? Yeah. It's, also, it's also got quite a good soundtrack as well for the Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. Yes. That yeah. produced that. In fact, it was written by Torin Atkinson of Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. Um, and yes, yeah, there's the accompanying album. And yeah, admittedly, I, fr from what I remember of the game, it's much more sort of gonzo uh, adventures in space, but just with those mythos elements just there, suffused all the way through it. Mm -hmm. And then moving on to 2007, another game I must admit I haven't actually played, uh, which is Cthulhu Tech, which is set in the, the, the dark future where the mythos has unveiled itself upon earth um and is facing humanity with extinction so humanity you know obviously as it tends to do when faced with problems like this builds giant mechs and punches evil in the face yeah it is the uh, pacific rim the role-playing game really yeah from what i understand again i've never actually played it but <laughs> it certainly sounds a lot like that mm-hmm <laughs> I mean, one that I've been quite interested in and have very, um, come very close to buying the book every, um, for a few times but then never had the chance to is Eldritch Skies from Battlefield Press back in 2012. This seems to be kind of in a similar vein to Cthulhu Tech in a sense but take out the horrendous big stomping robots and expand the, sc uh, the scope across more of the universe that people know now about the mythos it's quite open knowledge that people realize how insignificant in the universe they are but still are driven to start exploring beyond space and that then it's the horrors that they run across there rather than it just being focused purely on earth like i believe cthulhu tech is in terms of settings written for the call of cthulhu role-playing game from 2008 there's cthulhu rising which was produced as a chaosium monograph written by john ossaway who you may know is the designer of the good friends of Jackson Elias logo. 
And T-shirts. Yeah. Available in our merchandise shop. <laughs> End plug. <laughs> <laughs> and then also in Cthulhu Through the Ages, which came out in 2015, uh, we've got Cthulhu Icarus and Cthulhu End Times, The Reaping. So, yeah, Cthulhu Icarus, um, from the bits I gleaned of it, seems to be very much sort of event horizon done for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, the, uh, the Icarus is the name of the ship, I think. Yeah, so it's a ship that's gone somewhere it's not supposed to and has, has ended up bringing the mythos into the world. Event Horizon seems a good reference for a science fiction role-playing scenario to me. Mm-hmm. Now let's see what ideas we can come up with for a science fiction scenario seed for Call of Cthulhu. When I was thinking about this, one idea that I kept coming back to was... We've talked about how Lovecraft's aliens all came to Earth before human history, before we were even a race. And I keep wondering what it would be like if one turned up during the modern day. Would it play out like a classic alien invasion movie? You know, would this just turn into... Um, Cloverfield. Yeah, Cloverfield. I mean, that that would be quite an interesting one. Uh, you know, Cloverfield with Cthulhu. I, I was I was thinking more of fucking Independence Day, but oh god, really? Yeah, <laughs> no, it wouldn't be that bad, surely. No, but yeah, I, actually, I mean, something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers might be a, a better fit. Not Mars Attacks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think. Fundamentally, even though we're talking about aliens, the creatures in the mythos are f- sufficiently different because their their technology does so resemble magic, the fact that they blend so well with humanity, um, and the fact that just everything about them is an affront to you know human sensibilities of reality, that you know just perceiving their existence is sanity blasting, that such an invasion would be a very weird thing. I think the the thing I'd focus on, especially if it was a race arriving in the modern day, is the polarisation of response to it. That it's not just the unified humanity turns around, picks up a gun and tries to kick it, uh, kick it off the planet again. That you would have those that maybe not sympathise with, but want to know more, want to integrate, see this is the, world, uh, the way the world can finally stand up to the universe and say, hey, look, we're here. Um, but others that take the more xenophobic, or called the extreme end of xenophobic and say no this is our planet get off well and also i think because we've got the the basis for this in the fiction already the the most interesting faction that would come out there would be those who would worship these these aliens as new gods come to earth seeing the religious angle in it mm-hmm. mm. i mean for a start the whole thing would look very different to your standard alien invasion story in that they wouldn't necessarily be turning up in spaceships they'd be appearing in our midst uh, they'd be doing strange things, warping reality in strange ways, changing people. And if you had cults building up around those, and you know, then it, it wouldn't even end up feeling like an alien invasion story. Yeah, and I think having the idea that you've got people who are accepted by the aliens, so humanity is almost kind of segregated. So you could have the alien invasion and sort of play that out and then skip forward five years to when you know, things have kind of settled down a bit. Um, and there are these kind of, you know, resistance cells almost sort of fighting against the, the oppressors. I think it's something we've seen a few times 
on TV and films. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly elements of things like District 9 and Alienation in there as well with this integration. But I suppose what would be interesting about this would be the integration would be transformative for humanity if this, this were happening on a large scale and we've seen in Lovecraft stories and in the Call of Cthulhu uh, adventures we've played that when the mythos interacts with humanity humanity comes out the worse for it whether it's um, that we end up enslaved killed transformed whatever it is it wouldn't feel very much like a Call of Cthulhu scenario if there were an even integration I think it would be, have to be much more yeah, like I say, much more transformative. There, there was actually a film I saw a few years ago, not a very good one, that was along those lines, which was called The Sunderland Project, which was about a community, a small community. Yeah, an alien had come down, and it was a very Lovecraftian type alien, and they worshipped it, they saw it as an angel, and it basically ruled over their community. That would be much more, I'd say, the kind of approach here. The pitfall I see with this kind of setting is the same one I see with settings which take place in, let's say, what might be called almost fantasy realms. Um, And I include in that any game where you get a sword in your hand. So it could be Dark Ages or Roman. People kind of default to um, Dungeons and Dragons. And it no longer feels like Call of Cthulhu because you're no longer playing regular people in a kind of real world setting. And as soon as you Mm. kind of say that the world has been taken over by aliens or whatever, you know, to to kind of encapsulate that. It's no longer the real world. And you don't... It's. I think it's a danger that we kind of go into films and stories that aren't really Lovecraftian. Um, They're more Starship Troopers kind of to send it to an extreme. You're you're kind of... Your science fiction game, and it goes away from a kind of Lovecraftian horror game, a Call of Cthulhu game? Well, I I think it depends where in the story you come in. If you came in with the first signs of these things coming in the first um you know the first cults growing up the first you know ways that humanity starts changing around them and then you know play out a campaign where it gradually spreads and turns into something different that tonal shift would be a gradual one and yes it might turn into something that feels very different maybe you know much more like a pulp cthulhu game it would start out i think feeling like call of cthulhu i think keeping the the aliens not as you know alien monsters which you can run around and shoot with a gun yeah i think is is really important to that that they're kind of very strange otherworldly things that we can't comprehend you know the, the the real kind of mythos entities and if we look at babylon 5 we kind of see that with the what were they called Volons? and the shadows they were truly a weird alien race weren't they yes and I think even if you wanted to use existing mythos entities, um, you've certainly got, you know, say, uh, a creature like the Loigor, which interacts with you know humans in a very strange and detrimental way, which is largely ineffable, which is difficult, if not impossible, to fight physically. And so if you took something like that as a template, then it would end up being a very different kind of alien invasion film than you know, something you know, involving, say, Mego or, or Elder Things, where you could go around and shoot them in the mm-hmm. face. Yeah, that, that kind of setup where you could just pick up a gun and start trying to shoot every alien that comes into your back, um, back garden, that would definitely turn me off immediately. Just too much combat for a start. Feels very much like a Hollywood take on it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's partly... You've seen that trope being used innumerable times before that it's, it's been done to death you don't need to do that again and again yeah. 
But this could be some, a good chance to explore bits of the mythos that haven't yet been put down on paper yet. A big good one that I'd focus on is color, the colour out of space. We've seen the fledgling ones, but what happens when the full-blown adults come to Earth and what would they want here? Yeah, I mean, what if that first thing that we saw come down in, in the gardener farm was not even so much a, a fledgling, but what if it was a beacon? Oh, or a scout or something. Yeah. Yeah. Another one, another another sort of scenario seed that springs to mind sort of came up from our discussion earlier, Matt, when you were saying about how is it always the kind of, we're seeing the human world, what's so special about the human world that draws all these mythos entities to come and invade it? And and Scott, you said, well, it's because, you know, we are on the human world, so we're seeing that documented. So what if you took an alien world and, you know, set up a game on that and we were playing, you know, a game on, on, on some alien world, maybe as, you know, humanoid creatures, you know, whatever. Um, and then that's invaded by some mythos entities and we can sort of feel that, that whole recreation of what's happened on Earth millions of years ago with Cthulhu arriving. Or indeed, you know, as we said, sort of play a, a game sort of set in Atlantis or Hyperborea or whatever and, you know, actually experience Cthulhu arriving. I, one, one of the things I'm always a, uh, a fan of is being able to play the bad guy in a scenario or in a setting. I think it'd be good to play the Mego and then something threatens Yogoth. That would be a fun one. I mean, that would be quite a nice way of turning it around. I mean, I, it wouldn't feel desperately like a Call of Cthulhu game, but if you wanted to do a far future science fiction setting where you do have the Mego on Yogoth, and you know, humanity has now you know, advanced to the stage where they do have spaceships and are able to travel between, you know, certainly the planets of the solar system, and considering what a notoriously violent and warlike race we are, and the fact that by the time we got to that stage we'd have some pretty horrific weapons... I that would, I imagine, be pretty horrifying for the Mego. <laughs> yeah, really, really turn it on its head. Those pesky human invaders. Yeah. Yes. Why didn't we, why didn't we wipe them out when we got the chance? Yeah. Or kind of downscaling it a bit. You know, you could go back to the gaslight period or whatever, and you know, have some mad professor invent a flying spaceship. You know, blast it out of a cannon or something, and you know, a, a troop of investigators head off to Yugoth. Yeah, because I think one of the things about a Cthulhu game often is that that scale of it, it only involves a small group of people. And it can be a world-spanning thing, as we see with Delta Green and the previous uh, first edition of Delta Green, where it was the Mego were very much kind of a uh, major players in it with the first scenario of Convergence. Yeah, and the fact that they were responsible for a lot of what we see as alien activity in our world. And the government kind of in cahoots with them in certain areas. Another idea we were batting around a bit before we started recording was the idea of humans actually seizing, say, some MIGO technology and using that as the basis for their own space travel programme. You, you were, uh, I think, pioneering this idea, Paul. Yeah, the idea that, you know, if we could get hold of the technology to put our minds into brain canisters because one of the issues with traveling to the distant stars is the idea that it takes so long um, but if we could put our minds into to brain cylinders you know because when those are turned off effectively everything just goes black and you're not really aware you're in a kind of dreamlike state maybe how about we're in we're in those cylinders they're packed into a spaceship they're sent off to a diff- distant star with some kind of technology in it that will create 
a body for us when we get there, but obviously it might not be a human body as we recognise it. It's going to need mm-hmm. to be something which will suit the environment when we get there. Or maybe, you know, it goes, we've got little robots that go out and capture like native species and kind of you know bring those back and make some sort of frankensteinian monster that you know that we then put our brains into that can handle the the atmosphere and the and the physics of that world well and even the journey out there in the first place the fact that you've got all these cylinders on board uh, the spaceship for a very very long journey I mean, unless you found a way to actually put these minds to sleep for that then you know you've got perhaps the madness and the alienation that goes on from from being in that cylinder for what may be you know tens hundreds of years you could perhaps sort of play around with the idea that i mean during that time you know there'd be communications between the cylinders you'd network them together so that you know people could you know create their own you know virtual worlds and realities but as as they got madder from you know the length of the 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 space travel these worlds could become more and more nightmarish they could start forgetting that they are these brains in the cylinders and become lost within these these nightmares and strange dreams and now we come to that time of the show where we ask jackson so we as the earthly vessels of Jackson Elias are empowered to answer your questions about existential matters and uh, and and the nuts and bolts of the investigative process. Jackson imparts his wisdom to us, and and we speak for him and let you know the true answers to the questions that vex you. And our question this week comes from Linus Larson. Dear Jackson, why? Sincerely, humanity. And that's the kind of length question I like. <laughs> <laughs> it's also one of the best questions uh, that I remember from the prisoner, because they say that um, answers are a prison for oneself and questions are a burden to others. I think the quote's actually the way around, but anyway. Uh, the prisoner uses this as the one question that is insoluble by man or machine and use it to, uh, uses it to destroy the general computer that's kind of uh, mechanising education. So I stand by the fact that this question has no answer. It is insoluble. <laughs> but I think, you know, from the the world that, that Jackson dwelt in, you know, facing down the horrors of the cosmos and and these the, these nihilistic entities from beyond space and time, I think if you come through that entire process and think that there's, there's an answer to the to, to why then you're missing something you're missing something badly although there is when you think about a nihilistic worldview this question was asked in another film i can think of the strangers <laughs> just because you were in i think the nature of this question probably makes me grateful that this is asked Jackson and not ask Thomas Ligotti. <laughs> I think I think the answer that we would have got there would have been about 200 pages long and would have left us all just praying for death. <laughs> so after all this, what are our thoughts about the Cthulhu mythos and science fiction? Well, I suppose the big question, which... Yeah, I, I'd like each of you to answer, and I'll, I'll offer my own view. Is is Call of Cthulhu? Is the mythos actually a science fiction setting? No. <laughs> do Do you want to expand <laughs> upon that, Paul, or is this just going to be your answer? <laughs> you said you like short questions. You like short answers too. <laughs> I think 
more than anything, it brought it home to me when you were talking about in the last section about generating an idea for a scenario. None of those really felt like, to me, a Call of Cthulhu game. So I think the Cthulhu mythos obviously does have what one would term science fiction elements in it. But when we take it into a game, I struggle with it being a truly kind of science fiction setting. You know, the kind of things that we played. Because I think Lovecraft, as I recall, he said something about uh, weird weird tales and his approach to writing. And it was that they started off rooted as a real world setting. If they don't feel like a real world setting, if they start off feeling like a science fiction setting, I think it's then hard to make it feel like a Call of Cthulhu game. I'll also fall into the no camp, but with similar opinion that there are elements of science fiction within the game and within the mythos, within the literature, but primarily it is a horror game to me. Um, Even the game says Call of Cthulhu, horror role-playing in the realms of H.P. Lovecraft, that it's more of an emphasis on horror than it is on science fiction. But there are some great sci-fi horrors. I mean, like Hmm. Alien, I would say. If that's not a horror film, I don't know. I prefer Aliens, but that's because I like the Vietnam War film and it's very, very infinitely more quotable. <laughs> but for me, I'd say it's, it's definitely yes. And I, I mean, part of it is that we took a very reductive approach to what science fiction is in this, uh, in this episode. And science fiction is a very broad church. I mean, there are lots of SF stories out there by people like you know, Ray Bradbury, Thomas Dish, um, Harlan Ellison, J.G. Ballard, that are definitely rooted in the real world and bring this this sort of alien strangeness. I mean, Roadside Picnic, which we were talking about earlier, again, I think is you know, very much a science fiction story, but is very much about the you know, what happens when you get the intrusion of the alien into the real world. And, you know, science fiction doesn't involve, you know, the far future, doesn't have to involve the far future or spaceships or anything like that. You know, we, we can strip all these elements away. And what we're left with is is still, you know, very much a playground for the Cthulhu mythos. I really like the idea of all of this stuff just being technology we don't understand. You know, for me, the fact that we've got these things that appear to be spells that are, you know, ripping dimensional breaches, uh, we've got these gods that are actually aliens, we've got these magical artifacts which are actually bits of alien technology, I think that's fantastic, and it's what really, for me, differentiates Call of Cthulhu and the mythos from, you know, older horror settings. So, yes, for me, you know, the mythos will always be science fiction. I think it's interesting to think, when we play Call of Cthulhu, very often we're setting it in the past. I mean, the three of us have written quite a lot of modern-day games, but it tends to be, you know, the the classic period, 1920s. So we're kind of looking backwards. Not that one can't set science fiction in the 1920s, but we're looking back. Whereas Lovecraft was looking at, at his now or or even his future. I think maybe he was more drawn to science fiction than, than many Call of Cthulhu fans. Yeah, I can certainly see that, that... There's certainly a lot more of the elements of the... I hesitate the word use fantastical, but definitely more of the sci-fi tropes in that sense than there would be to how we would approach it. So there is that thing about looking back, that we, as now, know what Lovecraft's future was going to be, so it doesn't appear so fantastical and as forward-viewing, which is definitely more of a trope of sci-fi that we always think it's somewhere like the near future, that something's going to happen that advances in science. 
I mean, personally, for me, I would love to see more Call of Cthulhu scenarios that bring out these SF elements. So I mean, not what we were talking about before with grand-scale alien invasions and so on, but but that do move away from the fact that this is just another horror setting with you know interesting monsters, and and bring out what makes you know the mythos unique. But with this broader approach to science fiction, don't a lot of the scenarios bring that out? Well, except, you know, they tend to be very much couched in terms of magic and mysticism. And, um, yeah, all right, that, I mean, that may be the lens through which the, the characters are seeing mm. stuff. But, you know, Lovecraft portrays a very different world than that. Well, that about wraps it up for the Cthulhu mythos and science fiction. So, it's a galactic goodnight from me. A cosmic cheerio from me. And a futuristic farewell from me. <laughs> Blasphemous tomes.